please open your Bibles once again to 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been studying through this letter together now for several months, and we've had some intermission with some other mini-series and so. But we're now over halfway done, and we've seen that Peter is ultimately writing to Christians who are suffering. They're suffering for their faith in Christ, and he began in chapter 1 by encouraging them. He writes to encourage them, reminding them of their blessed hope in Christ and the the salvation they have in Christ and their identity in Jesus Christ. Then he calls them to live out that salvation in the context of everyday life. Your life, if you are redeemed, if you have true salvation from Jesus Christ, your life is intended by God to be a testimony, a testimony to the watching world. And last week we saw several reasons that we must prepare ourselves to suffer. Suffer for the will of God, just like Jesus did when he endured the cross. Verses 5 and 6 concluded our previous study with a focus upon God's coming judgment. To remember how things are going to end, and really that's where we're picking things up here. Verse 7 simply continues the same thought, where Peter says, The end of all things is near. And so, with that thought in mind, let's stand once more out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text together before we examine it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. There the word of the Lord says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord to speak to our hearts and change us this morning. Lord God, we come to you waiting upon you to work in our midst. We hunger for your truth. We need you to fill us. With truth, we ask that you would give your servant unction from on high to speak your words as we just read, that your servant would speak the utterances of God from you faithfully, truthfully. We pray that your people would have ears to hear, that you would convict every heart. We ask that your will would be done here in this place, here in our hearts, as it is in heaven. And we ask that you would do so, that you might be glorified in our lives in the preaching of your truth, and in the response of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear something like, the end is near? The end of all things is near. The world is coming to an end. Well, at least for many Americans, when they hear someone say, The end of all things is near, especially those who have not been raised in the church, brought up in the church. They tend to think, that person is off their rocker. That person is nuts. They're crazy. And there's some good reasons, at least, 
why we, or many Americans, tend to identify the end of the world, doomsdayers, with claims of crazy. In the 1990s, the founder of the Taiwanese religious group Chen Tao, meaning True Way, moved to Garland, Texas, where he said that God would appear and bring him and his followers away in spaceships disguised as clouds. Uh, and this would happen on March 31st, 1998. He also said that God would appear on Channel 18 to announce this plan on March 25th. Also in the 90s, Christian radio broadcaster Harold Camping predicted that the end of the world would occur in 1994. When that date came and went, he supposed he had simply miscalculated. And he set another date for May 21st of 2011. Shortly after that was the Mayan calendar sensation where many were fearful and there was all this hype about the world coming to an end in 2012. In 2017, David Mead, a conspiracy theorist who calls himself a Christian numerologist, if there is such a thing, claimed that a hidden planet, Planet X, would collide with Earth and destroy it on September 23rd, 2017. And he said that this date was written in code in the pyramids of Giza. Now, we could go on. I could share many other reasons that people identify end-of-the-world claims with crazy. Jesus clearly taught no man can know the day or the hour of his coming. And yet many have still made these sorts of claims, even daring to do so in his name, claiming that they have learned something that Jesus missed from the Bible. But I want to say this, that just because there's many crazies out there making predictions, and they're all over the internet, we shouldn't shy from the fact. We must not shy from the fact that the Bible does teach the Lord is returning. And the end of all things is near. Peter begins our text by saying in verse 7, the end of all things is near. When the New Testament speaks of the end of all things, it's talking about the end of this present age. The New Testament writers consistently identify the end of this age with the return of Jesus Christ. That clock began counting down the moment Jesus ascended, and when he returns, it's over. That's the end of this age. So Peter's talking about the fact that this present age is going to end soon, but Peter's not gone crazy, and he's not setting a date. He's not telling you when. He's simply telling you that because we don't know when Christ will come, Christians in his very generation need to be prepared. And if Peter could say that in the first century, I think I can say that in the 21st century. I must say that, that we must be prepared for the coming of our Lord. Sadly and ironically, many Christians, many Christians, many supposed Christians, obsessed with preparing for the end of all things, completely fail to prepare the way Peter calls us to here. I hear this more commonly today where people, again, many claiming to be Christians, some not, but they will tell you that in order to be ready for the end, in order to be prepared in the biblical sense, you have to figure out who the Antichrist is. And so that's why you have to subscribe to their YouTube channel and follow them and all that and do your homework. And if you don't, you know, it's going to be uh, curtains for you. Or you need to prepare for doomsday by building an underground bunker. And there are different guys that have different ideas for how we are to prepare for the end of all things. But ironically, in the New Testament, you don't find that anywhere. It is nowhere laid out for us. What we do see is much of what Peter tells us here. And I'm just going to let Peter answer the question this morning from the Bible. How should we prepare for the end of all things? 
His basic point in these verses is that Christians need to be living with the end in sight. Christians need to be living with the end in sight. And Peter, in this text, is going to give us three ways that we are to be living with the end in sight. First of all, he tells us, keep praying. Keep praying. Verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore, and everything he's going to say in verses 7 through 11, follow logically from this statement, the end of all things is near, the end of all things is near, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Peter's command to be of sound judgment is ultimately for the purpose of prayer. So the real focus in verse 7 lies on prayer. And yet there's an attitude which must accompany our prayer, and that attitude is one of sobriety, sound judgment, and a sober spirit. Peter wants you to know that meaningful prayer demands a disciplined outlook on life. Meaningful prayer demands a disciplined outlook on life, and the two imperatives that he gives us here are basically synonyms, though many commentators will recognize a nuanced distinction. The command for a sound judgment here is the command to keep a clear head in the face of danger and adversity. When adversity strikes or persecution comes, as many of these Christians were experiencing, and as we are told will happen in the last days, Peter's saying Christians must not lose their heads. Christians must not be like Chicken Little running around saying the sky is falling. Christians need clear minds because God has not changed and his word has not changed. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And in Christ, we are more than conquerors. This is not the language of defeatism. These are not those who are afraid of the Antichrist. These are not those who are Christians who are hiding in the hills, running into holes in the ground. He's saying, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit. Christians must not lose their head, but the command for a sober spirit here, I believe, is, is of a different nuance. It's a command to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. Remember that he's just described in verse 3 how there are some in the world, really the Gentile pagan way of life, was to be drinking and partying into the night. This form of uncontrolled carousing. People just do whatever they want to do. They wake up, they don't even know where they were. They don't know who they were with. That's the way of the world. This is the epitome of someone who's not sober. But Peter's saying, clear-headedness and self control. These things are essential for us as the end of all things draws near. Many sports like football, basketball, or hockey will figure a big clock. They will feature a big clock somewhere that is visible to all watching the game, right? And so if you're watching the game, what happens is as the game counts down, eventually, at least if it's close, right, your eyes go from the players to the clock, from the players to the clock, players the clock. And eventually, as the game plays out, our eyes flash from players to clock because we know that time's almost up. Well, the New Testament writers understood the fact that Jesus' coming inaugurated the last days. When Jesus ascended to the Father, the final period in history began. The clock began to count down. Now, we don't have that clock visible to us, but it's counting down. And Peter says, because the end of all things is near, it's time to get serious. It's time to watch and pray. It's time to get in the game and be busy. This is not a time to retreat from the church. It's a time to get into the church, get involved. 
be praying. That's where he starts, at least, with prayer. Well, you can't see the clock counting down the end of this age. It's there. God knows it down to the nanosecond. And when that clock runs down, Christ will appear at the time the Father is appointed. So some will say, well, sure, but that was nearly 2,000 years ago now, Pastor. How could Peter say the end of all things is near? In the first century, and now we live in the 21st century, and Christ has still not returned. Why should we take Jesus' return seriously now if he hasn't come already? Well, Peter, he anticipates the mockers, the scoffers who would come. In 2 Peter 3, 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is Jesus? It's 2024. Where is Jesus? I thought, I thought Peter said his time was coming, that the end is near. Well, Peter explains down in verse 8 of the same chapter, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow, he says, about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says the past two millennia are just like two days. He's saying, actually, God isn't forgotten. God is not even slow. God's not dragging his feet. But he does say this, God is patient. God is long-suffering. And if there's any reason for the delay of Christ, Peter would want you to know in the 21st century, it's because God is waiting for many, even all, to come to repentance. Isn't that beautiful? The long-suffering of God. Just as in the days of Noah, we saw in chapter 3, God is long-suffering today delaying his judgment for the sake of any and all to come to him. My friend, if you're here and you've not yet come to Jesus Christ in repentance of your sin and turn to him for salvation, he's delaying for you. He's waiting for you. Will you come to Christ before it's too late? As Jesus told us, we can't know when this age will end, but we do know the clock's counting down. We're living in the final period. Somewhere in the final period, are you ready? Are you ready? the return of our Lord. From the way many Christians today talk about the end times again, you'd think that Peter might follow up this call, this idea that the end of all things is near, and that we need to be sober. You might think he would follow it up with some instruction about building an underground bunker. I mean, if I'm just listening to people on the internet again. But he says here, we are to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Mark it down. Peter says, we need prayer more than ever as the end approaches. That's to be our priority. It turns out we need prayer as the end approaches. Rather than withdrawing into some underground bunker, Christians need to be gathering together for prayer. I know that's not as exciting or sensational as uh, some other things you hear end times, doomsday are saying, but that's biblical. Peter's really calling us to prepare for the end in the same way that Jesus did. You realize that? The same way Jesus did, approaching the end of his own life. Before going on to endure the sufferings of the cross, Christ armed himself with sober judgment and a sober spirit, and he did it by prayer, hitting his knees and pouring out his heart to the Father. It was originally Jesus who warned Peter that night in the garden 
Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. So as Jesus was there preparing his heart for the end, he told Peter, you need to prepare, lest you fall into temptation. But after Jesus gave Peter and James and John, the disciples, this instruction, he later came and found them sleeping. That's right. They were asleep. They fell asleep, and Jesus said in Mark 14, 37, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Jesus said, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the moment that Peter should have been prepared for and prayed up for. The moment of temptation was coming. This was the time to prepare in the garden. Jesus had even warned Peter earlier that same evening in the upper room, do you remember? And he said, Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He warned Peter of the weakness of his own flesh and his need to pray that he enter not into temptation. But Peter did not acknowledge this, did he? Peter did not become of a sober mind. He was not of a sober mind. He was not of sound judgment. He did not prepare himself with prayer. He was proud. He thought he could stand for Christ. He was relying on the arm of his flesh like many Christians today. They have schemes, ways they think they're preparing for the end, whether that's taking on the Antichrist with ammunition or whatever. I could tell you stories. It's sad. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the power of God. And that's what prayer is about. It's our lifeline to God. Peter collapsed because he didn't realize his lifeline was the Lord. He thought he could do this in his own strength. And so in the moment of temptation, he denied Christ. Well, now he's telling the church, let it not be said of you. Prepare. Be of a sound mind, sober judgment right now for the purpose of prayer. What about you, Christian? Are you aware of the weakness of your flesh? And if so, what are you doing about it right now? E.M. Bounds said of prayer, we are in danger of substituting churchly work and a ceaseless round of showy activities for prayer and holy living. A holy life does not live in the prayer closet, yes, but it cannot live without the closet. That is so true. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is our lifeline. The scriptures command us to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, and to devote ourselves to prayer, Colossians 4.2, and to pray at all times in the spirit, Ephesians 6.18. The moment draws nearer and nearer when we will be brought to stand before the Lord. Christian, to be living with the end in sight, you need to spend less time behind the screen and more time behind the veil with the Lord. Well, Jesus taught that the, uh, at the end of time, men's hearts will fail them for fear. That's the despair of this world without God. Jesus also taught that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We are to be sober and to give ourselves to prayer evermore as the end approaches. So that's the first thing Peter has for us. Give yourself to prayer. Keep praying. But secondly, also to be properly living with the end in sight, preparing for that time, Peter says, secondly, keep loving. Keep praying. Keep loving. Notice his emphasis, verse 8. Above all. Keep fervent in your love for one another. The words above all indicate love must be our priority. 
And it was Jesus who said that love, love to God, loving God above all things and loving others above yourself, that is the greatest commandment. That's the fulfillment of all the law of God. Love is God's priority for us. During the apostolic era, at a time when God was still dispensing miraculous sign gifts to his people, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and told them that above pursuing miracles and above pursuing all the wonderful gifts that he was dispensing in the church at that time, he says, you ought to be pursuing love. And then he goes on to give us the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. It begins this way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Do you love God? Do you love his people? That's right, you heard the scriptures. Without love, your best efforts, your best plans, your strategies, your knowledge, your achievements amount to nothing. God isn't pleased. He wants your love. Lord, let us not be devoid of love. At the end, we see Peter says, we must love one another. That is needed above all. Love for one another must be a priority and our love must be fervent. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your love means keep unwavering in your devotion to one another. Peter's commanded much the same thing already in chapter 1, verse 22, where he said, since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls from sincere love of the brethren, he says, fervently love one another from the heart. Because you have been born again, the Lord has given you a new heart. He's saying, love one another from that new regenerate heart. That's your nature, he says, in Christ. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, we are told that while Peter was kept in prison, prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. That's a very similar word in the Greek. And there's the idea. Here are these Christians praying fervently, unwaveringly in their devotion for Peter because they know his physical life is on the line. And that is the idea of the love, the fervent love that Peter is calling his church to have. A love that continues burning. But it must be continued. It must be maintained. In recently visiting some of Anna's relatives uh, near Philadelphia, we had the chance of staying in their home there and they have a nice fireplace, which was awesome on a wintry day. And my father-in-law continued to pour wood and paper and everything in the fire to keep it going. It's a lot of work, actually. And I couldn't help but think, that is a great image of the love that Christ is commanding us to. It's a love that must be maintained. It has to, you have to feed the fire. You have to continue to maintain the fire or it will go out. Jesus warned that in the last days, because lawlessness has increased, the love of many will grow cold. You see, that is the natural tendency of man, for the love to just burn out. Difficult days lay ahead. It will be easier and easier, especially as increasing persecution and resistance comes to the name of God in this country, 
we will see it will be easier and easier for Christians to retreat from one another, to retreat into ourselves, into our safe spaces, because fervent love isn't convenient. Fervent love is costly. Fervent love will cost you your convenience. It will cost you your time. It will cost you your precious resources. You have to give up your bubble, your safe space. You have to make yourself vulnerable for the sake of other people that Christ died for. But this is the kind of love that Peter's calling us to keep. Keep love fervent, burning hot. It's not going to happen without concentrated effort. It's not going to happen without sacrifice on your part. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because, Peter offers a reason, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says love for one another must be a priority. It must be kept fervent. But now he says because this kind of love is powerful. This kind of love preserves unity in a church. And Peter really borrows his phrase here from the Old Testament in Proverbs 10, 12, where we read, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Man, we desperately need to practice what Peter says here, this kind of a love that covers sin. Why? Because every church is full of sinners. It's made up of sinful people. No church is perfect. This means we're going to we're going to experience battles, not simply without these walls, not simply from people that are anti-Christ, but from even those who claim to follow his name. We see that in the disciples. They fight among themselves. We see that in our own families. Conflict is everywhere sin is. And there's sin in the church. And so if we're going to maintain peace and maintain unity in the church, we're going to have to maintain love for one another that overcomes all that. Honestly, I could say this in any faithful church, so nobody take this personally or be offended, right? But if you stick around here, sooner or later, someone's going to annoy you. Someone's going to offend you. Someone is going to downright wrong you, sin against you. It's not a matter of if, but when. Every church experiences this for the same reason that, that everywhere in the world there's sin and conflict. It, it might be as simple as someone's lack of hygiene. I'm saying, it, it doesn't have to be a sin issue. Many times in the church, the things that become most divisive aren't. But it becomes a sinful issue because of the attitudes, the wrong reactions to it. It could be somebody's deadbeat personality. You just don't like them, or they talk too much. They're over-talkative. It might be that somebody does not share all your personal convictions, and not even on spiritual things, perhaps. It could be politics. It could be sports or whatever. It might be that someone straight up insults you, or wrongs you. It will happen in the church. It happens in every church. The truth is, the room here is full of sinners, and sinners don't just sin against God, they often sin against one another. And so if you stick around here, or any church for that matter, sooner or later, you will be sinned against. And the question isn't, will we be offended then? The question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond? Well, Peter says, love. Fervent, selfless, agape, that's the word here, love. It is a love that is selfless. A love that wills the good of the other. And love is the answer because selfless, agape love is love that covers sins, he says. Not in the sense of atonement, of course. He's already made that plain in chapters 2 and 3. It is the blood of Christ 
that atones for our sins. Jesus' sacrifice carries our sins away. But this would be in the sense of 1 Corinthians 13.5, which tells us that this agape love keeps no record of wrongs. When somebody wrongs you, are you, are you pawning a list? You know, you can always tell that because somebody will keep bringing up things in the past. We're not to do that. We're, we're not building cases against one another. That is deconstructive to the church. That is not love. Are we glad this isn't the way that the Heavenly Father treats us? This isn't the kind of love that the Father shows toward his people, is it? A love that just also keeps record of wrongs. Colossians 2.14 says Jesus canceled out our sin debts, when, uh, which condemned us, sin debts that doomed us to hell, and he removed them out of the way, nailing them to his cross. Which is to say, Jesus took care of your sin debt. He removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. That's Jesus Christ. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, God has nailed your sins to Jesus' cross. So what right do we have to keep record of somebody else's wrongs? Well, how would it work for us if Christ kept a record of our wrongs? Surely if we're honest, we could only wish that God would forget our sins and keep no record of our offenses. And so Jesus said in Matthew 6.14, if you forgive others for their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you will not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses. That's pretty plain, isn't it? We must love others enough to forgive them. However, they've wronged us. And that's the mark of a true Christian. If you won't love others who've wronged you, because they've wronged you, and you decide you must hold against them their debts, the Bible would make it very plain to you, that's a mark of, of someone who's not a true Christian. The mark of a true Christian is someone who loves enough to forgive. If you won't forgive your brother, then don't call yourself a Christian. There's nothing Christian about that. And understand this too, be encouraged, you will never have the opportunity to love like Jesus so much as when someone wrongs against you. When someone annoys you, when someone gets on your nerve, you never have, have a greater opportunity to love like Jesus than in such a state. Because that's how and when Jesus loved us. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, unlovable, annoying, dirty, everything, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. After calling us to keep fervent in love for one another, Peter expands now on what this love looks like in verse 9. He continues, be hospitable to one another without complaint. He's saying our love should be demonstrated by sincere hospitality. And the word here translated hospitable is a compound word, phylloxenos, which means friend of strangers or love of strangers. Hospitality was especially important in the early church because in the first century Roman world, they didn't have any social welfare programs. They didn't have a social safety net for those who didn't make as much money or underprivileged or lost employment. And this was very common where people would lose employment because of their faith in Jesus. They might be ostracized from their family. What would you do if you were removed from your family, you lost employment for faith in Christ? You couldn't turn to the government. There was no shelter to take you in. What would you do? What if you had a family? What if you had elderly folks that you were caring for in your household. Well, 
The Bible tells us this is where the church stepped in. The Bible tells us, if you read the book of Acts, that the early, in the early church we see they had all things in common. These people opened their homes and emptied their pantries. They gave up their lives for the sake of one another because they loved and they were hospitable. And I understand that in our culture here in America, it's not like we, we commonly face this sort of thing because we do have social welfare programs and things like that. And all of us are certainly, by the world standards, very well off relatively. But what about Christians on the other side of the world? I think even now uh, of believers in different places around the world suffering for the sake of Christ. I was just reading the other day of how in Laos, Christians were worshiping in a home and the village authorities came and attacked them and tore down the home right there. And there's believers that no longer have a place to go back to, no longer have a shelter, a place to live in. Why? Because they're worshiping there in the name of Jesus. This is our reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so part of the hospitality that we are obligated as brothers and sisters to share isn't just to one another in the context of this church, but even considering brothers and sisters outside this country, brothers and sisters in need. There's much more that could be said there, but history does make plain. The early Christians showed their love to others in the form of hospitality and was so impressive that on many accounts the pagans took notice. You know that Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, agape love to one another, this will be evident in your hospitality, in washing one another's feet, in serving one another, in meeting one another's needs. In other words, Jesus claimed, this world has a right to judge whether or not you're a Christian, by whether or not you show love to the family of God. Our love is demonstrated in hospitality. But please notice how Peter adds, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Ah, yes. This isn't a show. This isn't being hospitable because that's what the pastor said or other people are watching, right? This is being hospitable, not grudgingly, not a show of hospitality, it is from the heart. Without complaint, that is, this is to be sincere. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12, 9 through 13 to the church. He said, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. It's very much there, parallel to everything Peter's saying in our passage. I, I just find it ironic that as Americans, we feel so entitled to retreat into our private lives. We have this sort of expressive individualism where we are entitled to our homes. We have a my space. And we're entitled to that through the week. And we come to church and this is a time to kind of break out of that and be vulnerable to people and share with people. And yet, we see consistently throughout the New Testament that as Christians, we are called to open our homes and even empty our lives for the sake of one another. And so we need to think seriously about how this is going to change the way we look and live in our life. We certainly need to be meeting more and not less as the day approaches, as Hebrews 10 would tell us. As the end draws near, the church needs more selfless, fervent love that will show itself 
in sincere hospitality to one another. So Christians living in light of the end are Christians that keep praying. They are Christians that are to keep loving. And finally, as the end approaches, Peter is telling us we need to keep serving. Very simple. Keep serving. Verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it. Serving, uh, he says, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Who gets the gift? Did you catch that? Who gets the gift? Each one has received a special gift. Each member of Christ's body receives a gift, a special gift from God. The Bible teaches that the church is the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, and we as his people, if we are born again, connected to Jesus Christ, we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, meaning God intends for us to be serving in this world. He's the head, he calls the shots, we are doing the work, and he's doing his work through us. That's his design. And to enable our effectiveness to this end, every sinner who's born again and becomes part of Christ's body receives along with eternal life spiritual gifts. Peter here calls it a special gift, using the term charisma, it literally means grace gift. A, a gift that you receive from the grace of God. It's his favor to you. Paul uses the term spiritual gifts, talking about the same thing. To emphasize in 1 Corinthians 12, how that is, is the Holy Spirit who gifts us in this manner. At the moment of our salvation. So every true believer has a part to play in Christ's church. This means the church is not a spectator sport. This means the church is not a place to just sit and veg, right? The church is not a dispensary to simply be spiritually fed. But notice, Peter's saying, God has gifted us for the purpose of serving one another. We come together as the body of Christ to help one another, to encourage one another, build up one another. Peter says, as you've received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So since God has gifted every true believer with a spiritual gift, he's expecting every true believer to be serving, to be working, to be contributing to his cause by contributing to his people, his church, for which he gave his life. And this is counterintuitive. What Peter's saying is counterintuitive from the way our culture thinks, whether they will say it or not. When we are gifted, when we are good at something, right, the idea is you're supposed to take pride in this. And other people are supposed to look at you. And it's supposed to draw attention to yourself. But the Bible's saying the opposite. It's saying when you are good at something, when you are gifted at something, it's the fact that God gifted you with that, that you might serve others. That you might lift others above yourself. Your gifting is God's grace to you. And it is also your responsibility to serve others. By using our gifts to serve others, we are being good Stewards. That's the word Peter uses to be a steward. What's a steward? A steward is one who manages the property of another. And so he's accountable for that property to the master. It's sure under his care, under his direction for a time, but it belongs to the master still. And the steward will give an account. Truthfully, we don't own our own time or talents any more than we own our own bodies. That's right. If you have been purchased, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The Bible tells us that your body belongs to God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 
and you are not your own. So Peter's saying God has appointed us as stewards over all that he's entrusted to us. And this means that one day you will answer to the master for what you've done with all he's entrusted you. That's kind of scary. Or at least that, that puts me on my toes. It makes me think twice about how I'm living. May the Lord find us faithful. We are stewards of, Peter says, the manifold grace of God, which is to say the grace that God's entrusted us is diversified. And I think if you just look out across this room, if you just spend any time working, uh, fellowshipping with the people here in this church, you see that, don't you? That's a beautiful thing. It's diverse. The gifts are diverse. And that should encourage us. Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. God gifts us all different ways by his same spirit. This is beautiful. And to picture what employing our gifts and serving one another is supposed to look like, just think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. It's like a body. has different members. They're all important. They're all working together under the common direction of the head, which is Christ, of course. So what does this look like even practically? Peter offers an example, verse 11 now. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Many have noticed that if you take the spiritual gifts, at least those listed in 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, and you, you categorize them into groups, you can categorize them into speaking gifts and serving gifts. We don't have to be so strict about that, but that's interesting. Peter uses here examples of speaking gifts and serving gifts, and I believe that if you, you look at what Peter's saying here in context, though, his real emphasis isn't on identifying your spiritual gift. That's not his point. You can do that by simply serving in the church. Get busy. It'll be evident how you're gifted to everyone you're serving. But Peter's real emphasis here is on how you are to use your gifts. Do you see that in verse 11? We are to labor with God's strength for his glory. Just listen as I read the verse again. Listen for Peter's emphasis. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Do you see it? The emphasis is on God, not the gifted, not us, right? It's on the one who gives the gifts. It's on the Lord. We're to speak as God gives utterance. We're to serve in the strength he supplies. We are to give glory to him in all that we do. If you've received the Holy Spirit, and he has gifted you then, to serve the church, what the church needs is not you strictly serving and, and doing what you want to do, right? What the church needs, what the Lord wants, is you serving in the strength which God supplies. That's a beautiful thing. Functioning the way God designed you to. Operating in dependence here upon God's power for his glory. More than one pulpit has the words inscribed somewhere on it. Sirs, we would see Jesus from a statement from John chapter 12. Sirs, we would see Jesus. And the point is, when a preacher gets up into the pulpit, whoever it is, people don't need the preacher. People don't need a, a, a great story or a comedian or, or whatever. People don't need to walk away thinking, wow, that was a great sermon. They need to walk away seeing Jesus Christ. Being grown or encouraged in their understanding of what the truth of God says. They need to come away with a higher view of who Jesus is. That's the idea. The gifts aren't about us, it's about the Lord, ultimately, whom we're serving by serving his people. 
And so uh, notice uh, he says, so that in all things God may be glorified. That's the point, right? And it's worth noting, God the Father is glorified through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, the one who's reconciling all the world to God through his cross. So that Peter could say of Jesus Christ here, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is interesting, but grammatically, if you, the, the most natural way to read this is the whom there, that pronoun, refers to the antecedent, Jesus Christ. And that would mean, if it's to Jesus Christ that belongs all the glory and dominion forever and ever, that would mean this is just another place in Peter's letter where we see the deity of Jesus manifest. I think that's the case. So, beloved, in this text we've seen Christians need to be living with the end in sight. The end of all things is near. Peter's saying we need to be living, preparing for this to happen in our time. And since Peter could say that in his day, we can say it in our time. He says, how do we do that? Pray, love, serve, every one of those things that we've looked at, we find all over the New Testament. This is just clearly Bible. These are connected everywhere to everything else the Word of God says. So, brother and sister, let me ask you, how well are you doing? How well are you serving others? How well are you using your gifts? Busy praying, loving others, showing hospitality. If you were to stand before Christ today and he was to ask of you a report for how you lived, you were to give an account to the master, would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? That, that ought to be our aim, what we're living for. The internet never has enough crazies, it seems, and so some of these false teachers that are just multiplying are wooing people away from Bible-preaching churches. This is the very thing the Bible warned would happen in the last days, that people would be drawn away after false genealogies and myths and stories, after things that don't matter. They will forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And they are turned toward those who preach fear-mongering messages and sensational end times talk. But Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6.20. He says, you guard what's been entrusted to you. This is the word of God. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments, which is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus have gone astray from the faith. It's happening in our time. It'll continue to happen. Hebrews 10 24, though, says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Sure, let them leave. Let some leave. Let some go after quacks and kooks. But he says, that may be their habit, but we must be encouraging one another and all the more, all the more as you see the day approaching. Get busy. Keep praying, loving, serving together. These things all require us to gather and assemble as a church. That's what a church is, an assembly, because the end is near. Maybe you're here and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, or you're not certain you have, and you're not certain you'd be ready if you were to come and you were to stand before him, that he would receive you into his kingdom. If that's you, we've already said the scriptures make plain, he's delaying for you. Would you come to Christ? Would you be willing to come to him today? He's only a call away. And if that's you this morning, you have any doubt in your heart, I would just strongly, as strongly I could encourage you, I can't force you, but as strongly as I can encourage you, please don't leave here without seeing someone, asking myself, Pastor Kevin, or someone about how you can have peace and hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.